I shared with my last class that um, my greatest fear about teaching is never about the people or about my own preparation. Whatever. It's always about the tech. Always, always. <laughs> oh, so far, I'm liking this less than you do. So let's try that. Okay, is that, that's better, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, this is so convenient, but... <laughs> it's a little more cumbersome to have to hold something, but to be able to have that kind of sound quality is a small price to pay, so it's a little bit All right, well, welcome back from... Hopefully, I don't know if you had lunch or if you had a spiritual feast with Elder Cook, the Lula Bowl. <laughs> First day of Education Week is always so exciting. Um, and it's nice to kind of um, set the, fr the framework and the foundation for these classes we'll be doing. This is a class that, in some contexts, I've done since 2003. And every year I keep thinking, okay, nobody's going to want to come to this class this year. I've done it so many times. But depression is still with us. Anxiety's <laughs> still with us, addiction's still with us. And for some reason in the in the manual, they didn't put those descriptive words, they just said if Christ had a healing of emotional challenges, I'm like, I thought please bring the people here who need to be here. But they'll fill in the blanks of what's not in the program this year. I know they love those words off. But that is what we're here to talk about. Christ and healing from depression, anxiety, and some of the emotional challenges. Um, so today's topic. Uh, for this first of these, um, this series uh, this week, choosing complete healing, not just symptom relief. Um, new strategies for dealing with distressing events and moving on with power. Now, as I said, in some form, I've taught this class since 2003. In this version with this PowerPoint, I think I've taught since about 2010. But as I pulled up the PowerPoint this time, dealing with distressing events. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't seem to have any shortage of those as the years go by. And um, if we believe the scriptures, we're not going to have a shortage of distressing events as the years go by. And so learning to deal with these uh, events as they come up, learning to deal in a productive way to be able to manage, and not just manage, but work through, heal from, be free of, these afflictions that obviously are afflicting more and more. Um, but when I first started as a counselor back in the late 1980s, what I was taught about depression back then is that it was a relatively mild, temporary condition, mostly among women of childbearing age, that would mostly, you know, resolve itself and, and be done without doing much of anything except just providing person support. That's literally what I was taught in graduate school in 1988. Needless to say, the, um, the message has changed over intervening years. And the dynamic has changed. Um, I'm a counselor in private practice in Sandy, Utah. And um, I see a range of clients and I see a, a range of clients with these disorders, including depression, 
And I can tell you they are no longer all just women of childbearing age. I see just as many men as women with depression, anxiety, and so on. I see a lot of teenagers. And sadly, I'm seeing more and more children, and it's not just me. It used to be in the 1980s, those, these disorders were pretty localized to that particular population. That's not the case anymore. You know, We live in a time when these conditions are becoming wider and wider spread. And obviously, over the last two years, as we've been dealing with the impact, the lingering impact of the global pandemic, we're seeing this even more. You know, more and more people struggle with this. So, so learning how to deal with these kinds of situations and these kind of challenges in the productive way, I think, is not just something that was relevant in 2003 when I started this class and relevant five years ago or 10 years ago. It continues to be relevant now. And hopefully, the skills and the insights that you'll learn over the course of this class, this today and, and, and in the future days in this class, the rest of the week, will be helpful not just for you here now, but also for those that you have influence with, your children, your grandchildren, the, the kids in your youth class, uh, the people that you work with, whether you work as in, a, in a helping field or you don't. If we don't struggle with these conditions ourselves right now, we know somebody who is. And happily, these are ideas that can be transferred and shared and used not just to uplift ourselves, but also to uplift others. So as we begin this um, discussion, let's talk about the difference between different methods, different mindsets of dealing with these kinds of challenges. Let's see if this thing will work for me. Okay, the first one we're going to talk about is something I like to call symptom-centered treatment. Okay? This, over the last 20 or 30 years, has become more and more and more popular. It goes something like this. from that speaker. <laughs> Um, you go into some healing professional, whether that be a medical professional or a psychologist or a nurse practitioner or something, and they say, so, what brings you in today? And they say, well, I've been feeling da 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 and you kind of give them the laundry list of what your symptoms are. And based on that laundry list, they go through this decision tree and says, okay, based on your symptoms, you have such and such disorder. Might be depression, might be anxiety, might be OCD, whatever. And so here's the treatment, and more often than not anymore, it involves some kind of prescription, and they give it to you, and that has side effects, and prevention effects, and withdrawal effects. And so then they maybe may change that or up, but it's uh, intended to be something that you continue to do, okay? Um, and just as often as not, what I find is that particular sort of treatment, a lot of times to some people, maybe a third to half of people will get some amount of relief from that approach, Enough that it continues to be a popular approach. It doesn't, doesn't take a whole lot of effort. You know, the part of the practice, you can do it in the five minutes that uh, the medical systems allow practitioners to see people anymore. Um, but the downside is it doesn't really help people learn to do anything any different. And sometimes over the process of time, you know, the approaches don't work anymore or the side effects get unmanageable or whatever. So a lot of people I work with say, oh, okay, so I've done that, I want to know what else is there. Well, the good news is there are other approaches. They're not the ones that are on TV all the time or on the little brochures in the practitioner's offices, but they exist. And my experience is they do a better job for longer term. So the second approach 
is something I got really excited about when I learned about it. It's called skills training. There are different versions of that. We're going to be talking about those different versions over the course of the week. It basically is um, techniques that have been designed um, by psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, marriage and family therapists, and so on, to teach people to do something or think something different than they knew how to do before. Um, one of the most uh, powerful of these is something that we'll talk about a lot tomorrow called cognitive therapy, where you literally identify what kind of thought patterns bring you down in depression, anxiety, whatever, and then you learn to replace, identify and replace those in a really powerful way over the process of time. And the cool thing about that is, once you know how to do that, it doesn't just work during the period of time you're seeing that practitioner. It works the rest of your life. It works with your kids. It works with all kinds of things. So cognitive therapy is really powerful, as is behavioral therapy, where you learn to do things different than you knew how to do them before. Okay? For some people... Um, their, their relationship problems have been a way of fuel their depression. So learning to communicate differently than they knew how to, or learning how to uh, set boundaries, or learning, you know, those kinds of skill-building approaches produce powerful, lasting change, okay? They're very powerful. And they've been shown in research to have a much more consistent, much more enduring impact than just managing symptoms, okay? So the very last of the three approaches in the put up here, is what I like to call Christ-centered healing. All right? Now, healing is very different than just managing symptoms, okay, or masking symptoms, or making something somewhat more bearable than it was yesterday, okay, or getting you a little bit more functional than you had to be. Healing is healing, okay? What the Savior did with people when he was on the earth wasn't just make them a little bit less lame <laughs> or a little less blind. He healed them, right? He turned around their affliction and helped them to actually recover from whatever it was that was afflicting them, okay? So what exactly is healing? The, the dictionary defines it as to make or become whole, okay? That's a really powerful concept. And again, that isn't something you're going to see in the advertisements for any of the purchasable products. None of them even claim to heal you. They just claim to, you know, make your life a little bit more manageable in the interim or whatever. But what some of my clients do is they come in on the symptom center treatment, whether it be, you know, medication or something else, and they learn the skills, and then over the process time, they learn these sort of deeper, more permanent healing strategies, and many times they find they don't need that symptom center treatment anymore, and they learn from the inside out how to transform that. You know? <laughs> One of the things to be conscious of in this whole process is wherever you are in the healing journey, it is absolutely a journey. It is a process. You don't learn everything or achieve everything in, in one instance. And so if somebody comes in and they're already kind of reasonably maintaining on their medication or whatever, I don't yank it away from them. That would be silly. But I do say there are things that you can learn that will make it easier over the process of time for you to manage all of this more and more by yourself. And it's really unusual that people don't go through the process and find that to be true. Um, so to make or become whole. So our power to heal. I love this about our bodies. The bodies we live in possess amazing, God-given power to heal and regenerate themselves. As long as we do not do anything to get in the way of this healing power. The brain is a particularly powerful and resilient organ capable of neuroplasticity throughout our lifetimes. Now, when I went to school in the 1980s, 
it was assumed that once you have your brain cells, you're done. If anything, you're just going to lose brain cells as you age. You're going to get less smart and less capable and less. That's just not true. What science has shown to be true over the process of time is that our brains, even more than the rest of our bodies, are designed to change. They're designed to grow new cells. I still have a little scar on my knee. You probably, you know, people in the front row probably can't see anymore. It's been long enough. Went mountain biking with my son, fell on my knee, got gashed really, really bad. You know, and it was bloody and it was deep and it took several weeks to recover. But when I look at my knee now, there's a little scar there. But amazingly, those cells have rebuilt my knee. You don't, you don't see the blood and the, you know, gash and the, everything anymore. The body knows how to heal itself if we don't get in the way. Well, guess what? The brain is exactly the same. If anything, it's even more powerful because it's such an incredibly powerful, resilient organ. We can fortify and build upon the innate healing capacities of our bodies and brains if we clearly know the difference between what heals and what prevents healing, and we regularly practice what is known to promote healing in our bodies and in our brains. So if that's what we mean by healing, then what do I mean by Christ-centered healing? Because you know, the skill-based approaches and others do, as I said, a much better job of helping people to actually reverse, get over, overcome these conditions rather than just manage the symptoms of them. So what does Christ-centered healing add to the mix? Well, this is what I find. Christ-centered healing is to become whole through a process guided by and centered in Christ, his teachings, and the guidance of his appointed mouthpieces. A number of years ago, um, I had a client come in who uh, was really struggling with depression and anxiety. She had a history of sexual abuse as a child, as many of my clients do. I had a bunch of other traumas. And, and she said she was on the verge of a divorce because she was so shut off as is commonly the case with these different conditions she was facing that her, you know, she just didn't have the time or energy or focus to be able to, to give um, what she needed to to a marriage. And that she recognized in the face of that that um, if she were to go that direction, she probably would just lay in bed in a room alone for the next several decades as her husband, ex, now soon to be ex-husband, she went that course, raised the kids, and they sort of tried to hobble along, and they were more depressed because of the divorce and stuff. She didn't want to do that. She didn't want to go that course. So she said, is there a way I can actually heal of this and restore capacity I once had to love and to connect and to trust and all that kind of stuff. Well, I loved your question. It reminded me of something that Paul said in the book of Hebrews. He said, and let not that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. I love that. In other words, if I had broken my leg, or even when I had that little injury from my mountain biking accident, I couldn't walk normally for a while, you know, and if I actually broke it, I, I broke in my uh, toe one time, and yeah, I, I couldn't walk normal, because I was, I was broken, right? Sometimes what we think is, if I'm broken today, I'm broken forever, <laughs> right? If, if, especially if I have a broken brain. If I have a chemical imbalance in my brain that says it's broken and it's not working, I'm always going to need these things and not be broken. Guess what? We are born designed to heal. And 
And if we know the conditions that can help release that natural function of our bodies, those built-in functions, then guess what? We have a series of new choices that affect not just us, but our loved ones. So as I was thinking about that woman's experience and that scripture, um, it brought to mind some thoughts and some feelings that I've captured in the following format. Um, whenever I learn something really deep, I like to capture it in that moment as a song. So I'm going to share that with you. I want you to think about this whole concept over this next three or so minutes of let it rather be healed. Hopefully this will work this hour. You can't walk the way you want to when your legs are broken. You can't love the way you need to when you're hiding pain unspoken. You can't give all your heart while you're still holding back a part. Let it rather be healed. You can look for all the answers from the wisest men. You can try with all your power and then try again. But perhaps like me, you'll find you just can't leave it all behind. Let it rather be healed.
happens, I began over the 30 plus years that I've been a counselor. I have seen that hope, that promise carried out. People can and do heal. Now, when I hurt my leg, there were certain things I needed to do in order for it to heal. So that as I'm standing on the stage today, it's not in my way. I'm not still broken. First of all, I had to go in, it wasn't fun, and identify and pick out every single piece of that gravel and uh, dirt and everything else that had gotten jammed into my knee. And then I had to clean it out. And then I had to disinfect it. Then I had to bandage it. Then I had to elevate it and rest it and ice it and do a bunch of things. My knee had the capacity within it to heal, but there were certain things I needed to do in order to activate that healing power in my body. I find the same kind of process is true as we're dealing with these emotional challenges. Now again, as we um, talk about this healing, Christ-centered healing, but from what? For this, I'd like to think of a little acronym that I put together to make this easy to remember. First of all, the Adasa response. The Adasa response is basically what we do naturally as human beings when distressing events happen to us, when things don't go the way we expected, when we get hurt, when we get traumatized, when we get abused. This, this is what naturally happens, okay? The Adasa response. Some version or all of the versions of this. Number one, anxiety. It's absolutely natural, absolutely normal for us to get scared, to be anxious when we're hit by some of these distressing events or by uncertainties around us. Second, depression. Really normal for us to get sad, to get to grieve and then stay stuck in that grief and sleep too long because we don't want to face whatever it is that, that we're dealing with or wonder if life is worth it. Totally natural, understandable, normal. And I have to tell you, I've dealt myself at some point with every element of this audacity response. So I know how absolutely normal and natural this is. And if this is a place where you are right now, you're totally natural and normal. Something's happened to you. And, and essentially, something's happened to all of us, even if extra stuff didn't happen to you by just by what we've been through the last two years. Okay, there are reasons that more people than ever are struggling with the Adasa response. Okay, third element, anger. Really normal. When something's been taken from us, or when something doesn't work out the way we thought, and especially if we try to be faithful, we try to do everything right, but it still goes wrong. Really normal. Like Lyndon Lyndon will say, that doesn't make any sense, you know? We see more and more people in the face of this pandemic turning away from God, getting angry. I was absolutely stunned in my home in Sandy, Utah, just about 40 miles north of here, between Sandy and Provo, or between Salt Lake City and Provo, walked into my little local Barnes and Noble. And I was absolutely stunned by what I saw. I, I loved that Barnes and Noble for years. I walk in, they show me all these nice new books and whatever. Well, in the front section, as I walked in, uh, this is about a year ago, I guess, on the heels of the pandemic being so, you know, raging so much, there was a section that they called um, personal growth. I'm like, okay, I'm a counselor, I'm interested in personal growth. So I walked in, and I looked at the shelves. I was absolutely stunned, brothers and sisters, by what I saw. It was books on witchcraft, Satan worship, Wicca, there were all these different things. It's like, wait, this is 
personal growth now? This is personal enlightenment? <laughs> really? I have at least eight family members that I know of that have turned to one of those courses over the last few years. When things go wrong, it's normal to say, well, what else is going to hit me? Anxiety or, oh, this is terrible. It's never going to get better. Depression or, this doesn't make sense. God, why did you let this happen to me? Why me? I didn't do anything to deserve this. Anger, totally natural, totally normal. The adaptive response. Obviously, when we get hit with these things, another normal response is stress, which is literally experienced in every cell and organ system of our body and can have a decompensating effect in those organ systems if we're not careful. And finally, of course, the culmination of all these, addiction. I just want something for one minute to make this pain go away. Okay? Addictions have also become far more common over the last several years because we've experienced this crazy worldwide distress. Right? And one of the, the, the teacher before me reported on some absolutely phenomenal statistics. And we just heard from Elder Cook about how much, not just depression and anxiety, but alcoholism, alcohol-related deaths. You, you, you heard him say it, you heard his talk. Accounted for more deaths during the pandemic than COVID ever did. And that's just one thing, okay? So addiction can also be not, not just alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, all that kind of stuff but also, obviously, pornography. Far, far more people are struggling with that now than they were a couple of years ago. And again, it's something to do, it's something to be with, it's something to take the pain away for a few minutes. And the thing about an addiction is it's a repetitive behavior that makes you feel better in the moment, but makes you feel worse over time. Okay, there's a huge price tag for the relief that comes momentarily from that addiction. And what I finally realized working with a number of, of individuals, mostly men, pornography, is that that one tiny little corner of a much bigger addiction that I'm convinced has become virtually universal. And that addiction is to these things. You know, our phones, our media devices, you know, we have learned to turn to them in the midst of our pain, our distress, our anger, our anxiety, just something to fill the time, something to focus on and distract us for a few minutes, right? Many people over this period of time have turned to junk food as an addiction. We call it emotional eating, right? I've done it myself, especially the first few months of the pandemic and I realized, dude, this is stupid. <laughs> I'm, I'm facing the, the stress of a immunity compromising Condition by 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 giving myself poison, you know. <laughs> and it was shocking to me during that period of time to go to the grocery store and to see what people were filling their carts with. I'm like, so if we're also worried about our health and we're doing everything we can to protect those around us, why all of the Twinkies and the Dr Pepper and the Fritos and the junk? Because guess what? Those things don't protect our immunity. They don't help us to heal. They don't keep us safe. They do the opposite. And it's really normal to turn to those kind of things when we're distressed. Normal, but not healthy. See, we can choose something better than normal. And, and again, if you've done any of these things, welcome to the human race. <laughs> We've all done them. I've done every one of them. That's why I know so much about them. Not just because I kicked them at other people, because I had to deal with them in myself, in my own family. 
But I've experienced it both ways, brothers and sisters, turning to what's normal, letting what's normal happen, versus learning a better, happier way. You remember what the Savior said? I am come that you might have life, and you might have it more abundantly. And right before the night he, he died, he said to his apostles, these things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might be in you, and that your joy might be full. See, the Savior has something way better for us than this stuff, and way better for us than the temporary distraction of our various addictions or our various other ways of dealing with things, okay? So this is certainly what happens to all of us naturally and normally, and we're seeing it more and more in our society based on what's happening, but it's not our only choice. Now these elements of the ask response can occur separately, or more commonly can occur together, complicating one another. In other words, if I'm already depressed, and then I get in a car accident, I'm far more significantly um, inclined to develop um, an anxiety disorder as well. It'd be post-traumatic stress disorder. It's like, oh no, in addition to my life being terrible, now bad things are always going to happen to me, right? Or I might develop an anger problem. People are always running into me and just, you know. So the, each of these conditions makes it more likely we'll develop others of these conditions until and unless we choose the other response. So let's think about this, this sweet little lady we learned about in scripture. A woman in Jesus' time who suffered for years, 12 years, with an issue of blood which is a polite way of saying she had most likely female problems that resulted in her having kind of blood flow all the time. Now, that's, um, in our day, it would be uncomfortable and embarrassing and inconvenient, but in her day, it was devastating because a woman producing that kind of feminine blood flow was literally considered unclean. Could you imagine being unclean that way for 12 years? So understandably, this poor woman did everything she could. She went to all kinds of healers and physicians and different things. But what the scriptures tell us about those various experiences, she was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse as a result of all those different treatments, all those different things were applied. And I think about this sweet little lady having suffered so much for so long and and it, it literally, you know, the scriptures tell us it took her entire living. She spent everything she had as payment for these supposed treatments. And it didn't help. It made things worse. So can you imagine being this little lady having gone through all of this? And one day, one day, your friend comes by and says, let's say her name was Martha. Martha, there's, there's this... This guy that's come into our neighborhood, he's a carpenter by trade, but he's been healing people. I, I literally saw him raise, you know, a, a, a layman from his, you know, who couldn't walk for his whole life, and now he, he walks, and I saw him heal some lepers. I, I think he could heal you too. Can you imagine this poor woman after everything she's been through, and all the other times somebody came to her, hey, someone could probably help you. And then so and so didn't help. They just took the, you know, took more of her money and didn't help. I can imagine this poor little lady just going, I, I cannot afford to hope again and be disappointed again. And I can imagine this, this woman's friend saying, you know what? This guy's special. Just look at her. Just come and see. 
And so she did. She found it inside of herself to try just one more time. And she wasn't the only one. By that time, Jesus had healed enough people that there was a huge multitude following him. And as she saw him, and as she saw him heal others, she, she developed this idea, if, if, I could just, if I could just maybe touch the hem of his garment, I'd be whole. And so somehow she pressed through the crowd, kind of ignoring all the social rules about you're unclean, so you can't be around anyone, you know. She touched the hem of his garment and instantly felt that 12-year condition stop. She was stunned. Nothing else had worked. But this did work, and it worked instantly. And she's like, you know, and here in the midst of all these people, Savior stops suddenly and says, wait, who, who touched me? And his apostles are, said, um, Jesus, you've got hundreds of people pressing in on you, and you're asking who touched you? Probably, you know, a hundred people touched in the last two minutes. He said, no, 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 who, who, who touched me? He started looking around and saw the eyes of that woman. And that's when he filled with tears. She fell before him and she told him the whole truth about what had happened. And I love what the Savior said to that woman, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go and be whole of thy plague. And she left with her life completely changed by what she learned from the Savior that day. Now, what I find with emotional healing, there's so many layers that have happened over so many years. You know, concepts of, a common misunderstanding. If people have heard my talk or they, you know, think I've been given it since 2000, you know, hey, Sister Wrigley, I'm calling you up because I want that Christ centered healing. Just lay it on me. Give me that Christ centered healing. Bam, you know. Um, nope, that's not really how it works. You know, these wounds. These habits of body and mind and heart that, that accompany depression, anxiety, and so on have been built over years. They're not going to be instantaneously evaporated. But what I find is, as people learn step by step by step how to intentionally transform the things that otherwise are feeding their distress, that's when they heal. And that as a result of that process, again, not an instantaneous change, but as a result of that process, people do heal. Now, I remember that um, when I was in state conference one day in my local stake, my state president um, shared the same story about this sweet little lady and the complete healing that came to her. This is probably about 20 years ago, maybe longer than that. It has to be more than that because I've been teaching this class longer than that. Okay, well, about 25 years ago. And I've been a counselor now that, by that time for a number of years, and I've experienced people getting a little less depressed, a little less anxious, a little less addictive, a little less conflicted in their relationships. And more than that, I've experienced that with myself, with my own pain. I've gotten a little bit less messed up, a little bit less grieving my past, whatever, all that kind of stuff. But I, I was hoping there was something better than just being a little bit better. So our state president told the story in that state conference of this woman with the issue of blood. And at the very end, I will never forget the words that he stated. He said, the Lord's healing is complete healing. 
that stunned me because I had never seen anything, and certainly never experienced anything close to resemble complete healing of an emotional disorder. But I started to think, is that really a thing? Is that even possible? Well, it wasn't long after that talk that I got a second witness, this time from an apostle, Elder Richard G. Scott, who in a talk called To Be Free of Heavy Burdens said, you do not need to experience a lifetime of counseling. Complete healing will come through your faith in Jesus Christ. Ponder the power of the atonement. Pray to understand how it can heal you. Um, and let's stay with that for a second. Now that particular talk was given specifically to those who bore the terrible burden of having been sexually abused as children, which is one of the deepest distresses and one of the most enduring pains, I find, that can affect a person. And yet that promise was given to them? And it made me wonder if that's even true for them who struggle so much, who hurt so much. Is it possible it would be true for some of these more common everyday afflictions as well, that complete healing can come emotionally. So I started to study this out. We just heard from, um, from Elder Cook about the importance of looking to our apostles and prophets. So that's what I did. Um, looked to what they had said about these different conditions. Well, it turns out there's this amazing talk that was given by President Benson back in 1974. This is before depression was classed as epidemic in the 1980s. Before anxiety overtook the world at the beginning of the, the, 2020, the 2000s. Um, so he gave it in 1974 and was president of the 12, and then later it was published in the Ensign in 1986 when he was caught, but with almost no change. He said this We live in an age when, as the Lord foretold, men's hearts are failing them, not only physically but in spirit. Many are giving up heart for the battle of life. As a showdown between good and evil approaches with its accompanying trials and tribulations, Satan is increasingly striving to overcome the saints with despair, discouragement, despondency, and depression. 1974, brothers and sisters, the watchman on the tower saw it coming before the storm hit, just like we heard from Elder Cook. Then this talk was given four years later in 1978 by Elder Boyd K. Packer. He said, we live in a day when the adversary stresses on every hand the philosophy of instant gratification. We seem to demand instant everything, including instant solutions to our problems. We are indoctrinated that we should always be instantly emotionally comfortable. When that is not so, some become anxious, all too frequently seeking relief from counseling, from analysis, and even from medication. Now again, look at that date. In 1978, how many people did you know? that were on mental health medications. Hardly any. The watchman on the tower saw it coming. He continued, it was meant that life would be a challenge to suffer some anxiety, some depression, some disappointment, even some failure is normal. Teach our members that if they have a good, miserable day once in a while or several in a row, to stand steady and face them. Things will straighten out. There's a great purpose to our struggle in life. Then finally, going back a number of years before that, clear back to George Q. Cannon, who was one of Brigham Young's uh, counselors, he said, the Lord our God has sent us here to get experience in these things so that 
we may know the good from the evil and be able to close our hearts against the evil. Everyone has the power to close his heart against doubt, against darkness, against unbelief, against depression, against anger, against hatred, against jealousy, against malice, against envy. God has given this power unto all of us, and we can gain greater power by calling upon him for that which we lack. I love that statement that we can learn to close our hearts. Now, that is not natural to us. Natural is what I showed you before, the adaptive response, anxiety, depression, anger, stress, addiction. That's natural. That's normal. We have to learn how to engage in these other ways of being, of thinking, of doing to allow our bodies to heal rather than continue to spiral in a negative way. Now finally, I love this last quotation because it's the power of prophet quoting prophet from the same 1974 talk by President Benson quoting the prophet Joseph. Salvation, said the prophet Joseph, is nothing more nor less than to triumph over all our enemies and put them under our feet. We can rise above the enemies of despair, discouragement, and despondency, depression, discouragement, and despondency by remembering that God provides righteous alternatives. That, brothers and sisters, is what I have found over the course of my life and career. There are righteous alternatives. There are different ways of doing things, thinking about things, engaging with things, relating to people than what is natural to us as faulty, um, under-construction human beings. Things that we can learn a little bit at a time, things that we can choose to implement. Not all at once. Like I say, it's a gradual process. But I have seen people heal from the most horrendous conditions and the most distressing events in their lives through applying these principles, as well as having applied them myself. Now, an important thing to understand, healing is never a passive process. Rather, it is an active process of learning the elements of healing and then applying them consistently and intentionally over the process of time. This awakens that healing power within the individual, calling forth the innate capacity of the human body and mind to restore itself, just like my knee, okay? There are things that we can choose to do that encourage that healing process. So let's talk about the stages of healing, okay, to, to lead us to that complete healing stage. First of all, this is, this is across the board. All the different uh, treatment protocols use this in assessment and diagnosis. You go in and through one method or the other, you figure out what's wrong, right? Just the same as if your car is struggling, you take it to the mechanic, you do a diagnostic, right? Same kind of process. You have to figure out what's wrong before you can figure out what to do. Everybody does that. Second, intervention and treatment, okay? In all the different healing protocols, there's something that is done to try to make things better, whether it's just kind of managing symptoms or something different, okay? With symptom-centered treatment, that tends to be intervention and treatment and treatment, and treatment, and treatment, okay? And nothing's really changed within the individual. They don't really learn to do anything different. They just keep applying the treatment. I don't find that to be the complete healing process we're talking about because those processes, just like my knee, involve recovery and rehabilitation. In other words, getting to the process, over the process of time, that the thing you came in for, that condition that was diagnosed in step one, isn't there anymore. Okay? I no longer have a broken, jagged knee. I can kneel down without pain. Okay? 
Um, so recovery and rehabilitation, and then finally the last step, wellness in relapse and relapse prevention. In other words, get to the point that not only do you not have the condition anymore, but you know how to take better care of yourself so that you don't keep launching into the same kind of problems. I will tell you, I'm much more careful now when I ride my bike <laughs> than I was before this whole thing happened. Okay? Um, so we learn how to be a little bit smarter than we were before. We learn skills we didn't know before. Again, none of us know everything at once. We can be kind to ourselves and say, okay, there's some things I haven't figured out quite yet. And as we apply different things over the process of time, we can gradually, gradually um, improve our capacity to deal with these things. So let's talk about ineffective approaches that do not take us all four of those steps of the entire uh, healing process. The first one I'll, I'll mention is what I call assessment-only therapy. This is the kind of counseling or therapy that's very popular, where you go in and the counselor says, so what brings you here today? Oh, I'm kind of struggling with some depression. How long have you been depressed? Oh, such and such and such. When did it first start? Oh, the, the, this and that. You know, uh, well, tell me more about how you feel. Okay, I was like this and this and this. How, when else have you felt that bad? Well, it started probably when I was five years old, blah, blah, blah. And when else have you felt? And you spend the next, could be five months, could be a year, could be 10 years, telling that therapist everything else that was wrong with your life. And all the things about your childhood and all the things that didn't happen and all the disappointments and all the tragedies and all the trauma. And you know the result of that over time? Of just focusing on what the problems are and where you hurt? People come in all the time to my counseling practice and say, you know what, it was so hard to decide to come and get to another counselor because I've been with so many. And I just feel worse. So now I know the names of all my disorders. Now I know what all my triggers are. Now I know all the dysfunctions that me and my family suffer, but you know what I don't know? I don't know a single thing about how to change or improve any of it. <laughs> Assessment only therapy. It's not helpful. Second, we've already talked about this a little, medication-only treatment where you just keep taking chemical, you know, substance to kind of keep, to keep the symptoms down. Again, for some people for a period of time, that can be helpful if they can't function. But if that's the only thing being applied, I'll tell you what research told, um, research was clear back in the 1970s. That is a strategy most likely of anything studied to keep people stuck and um, at risk and relapse of their condition. Because again, it doesn't really teach you to do anything different. Okay? The third ineffective approach I call misguided spirituality. I referred to this before. It's like, okay, God, I just went to this class on Christ-centered healing and how you made this women with the issue of blood all better. So I want you to do that for me. So I'm ready to have you take away my depression. Ready, set, go. <laughs> Nothing. That's misguided spirituality. Okay? So please understand, even for the best human beings on this planet, for Joseph Smith, for Abraham, for Moses, for um, Jesus himself. They didn't learn everything they needed to know in one fell swoop, okay? It is a process. So misguided spirituality is expecting God to just suddenly yank away our affliction or our problem or our addiction or our depression, whatever it is, okay? That's misguided, okay? That isn't how it works. These three approaches are all ineffective over time because they foster dependency on some outside source rather than activating that internal capacity that we and our bodies and brains have to heal from the inside out. So I certainly, well, rather than developing strength and capacity within the individual. So as opposed to ineffective spirituality, 
Here's, I'm sorry. Sorry. Go ahead and take your picture. Thank you. I just got more to share with you. I said, you're in a hurry. <laughs> okay. In, in contrast, ineffective spirituality, here's, a, here's an important concept to understand. God rarely takes away our problems, our struggles, our distresses. Okay? You hardly ever see that in Scripture. But here's what he does do, as learned in Scripture. He will visit us in our afflictions. He will support us in troubles of every kind. He will lead us through our afflictions. And he will nourish, strengthen, provide means for us. It's done now, so now you can take your picture. <laughs> Those are the things he can and will do for us. It's a journey. I love what Nephi said over the course of his eight-year journey. You know, my God hath been my support. He hath led me through my afflictions in the wilderness. And it is my testimony that he's done the same for me in the midst of my adversities. And I love this talk that was given in, uh, a number of years ago by Jeff Okasaki, where she talked about uh, the scripture in section 88, 118, seek learning by study and also by faith. And over the course of my 30 plus years as a counselor and in my own healing process, I've chosen to do that. I've looked to, armed with these foundational principles of self-reliance and healing and looking to the Savior and step-by-step -step progress, I've looked to um, my profession, study, to see which of the available approaches match those principles, and I've embraced them. And I find that they give practical application to the principles we've talked about. And those that don't match, I don't embrace those, okay? So in essence, these principles we've talked about have been the standard, the scriptural standard I've used to evaluate every possible option. Based on that, I put together a little model. We'll kind of fly through this quickly, and then we'll go, go into more detail about the rest of the week. This is the model that I've come up with over the course of time um, for how depression, anxiety, etc., cetera, um, come about. Oh, there's study of faith. First of all, I have never seen depression, anxiety, etc. just kind of snap into existence out of nowhere. You see that all the time in the commercials. Oh, all of a sudden, this person's got a chemical imbalance or whatever. I've never seen that. Never. In 30 plus years, what I have seen is that every one of those um, afflictions starts with some kind of relationship trigger. And I thought that was an original idea with me. Then I found a bunch of researchers at the university found the same thing. This is an amalgam of their list and mine of the kinds of triggers, we'll go through this in more detail tomorrow, that tend to trigger these kinds of emotional reactions. Grief, losing someone important to us. Transition, important things changing in our lives, even if it's normal changes like graduation or retirement or marriage or childbirth. Conflict, whether that be conflict with another person out there like a spouse or a child or conflict within ourselves. Lack of interpersonal skills. That one used to be really quite rare. In an age where most of us deal with our relationships like this, it's become almost across the board. Abuse and violence, huge trigger. Injury or illness, loss, and disappointment. These, every single time I have a new client, I go through that list, there's always at least one, usually there's way more than one, of these kinds of trigger events, whether it be recent or farther back in their past, because these things tend to complicate each other, and they tend to build on each other. Now, the other thing to recognize is, while these conditions always seem to be present in the beginning of an adaptive response, depression, anxiety, and so on, all of us know people that have had these kind of experiences, but aren't depressed, aren't anxious, aren't addicted, whatever, so what's the difference? 
And that's where the other elements of the model come in. And we'll talk about a ton about this tomorrow. Thoughts. What scientists and philosophers have found is it isn't so much what happens to us as what we think about what happens to us that affects um, our emotional state. Okay? Happily, that's something we can actively reconstruct. That's going to be the focus of tomorrow. Then after thoughts, the next part of the model is behavior. Um, thoughts form the foundation of behavior. If I wake up in the morning and I say, well, nothing good's going to happen for me today, and it's just going to be one series of different disappointments after another, why get out of bed? Right? If, I, if, I, if my husband's getting ready to come home from work and I go, well, he's probably just going to ignore me all night, and he won't even appreciate this dinner that I spent the last hour making for him, he's such a jerk, well, how am I going to treat him when he finally comes through the door? Not well, okay? Thoughts are the foundations of behavior. But behavior makes it worse because then we kind of channel our thoughts into everybody around us. Everybody's affected by what we were thinking. These are changeable elements. Right now we're just kind of looking at the diagnostic elements. Uh, negative thoughts and behavior lead to a negative impact on spirituality. Not only it may be harder to pray, harder to read the scriptures, harder to exercise faith, harder to go to the temple, but it's harder just to feel good about it in sort of new age spirituality mode. Harder for us to feel good about the purpose of our lives and, and our worth as a human being, whatever. And then finally, sadly, all of that rolls around back to relationships. As we're dealing with negative thoughts, negative behaviors, negative impact on spirituality, it almost inevitably will affect the way we treat other people. We'll pull away from them or we'll be angry with them, mean to them or whatever, which then makes a cycle happen because our bad behavior toward them can that be their trigger that starts the whole thing over again? I really think this is one of the major reasons that these problems so often are intergenerational. How do we use this process? And again, we've been going into a lot of detail this week about this. First, to identify those elements, specifically personal to you. Second, and this is the part that takes the time to replace those elements, one item at a time. And finally, to assimilate those new ways of doing things so that the new way of doing things becomes the normal way. That's how we recover and rehabilitate. Now, all of those elements work by themselves without having any faith involved. But, oh, brothers and sisters, they work so much better, so much more, comprehen more comprehensively, so much more powerfully when Christ is at the center of those efforts. I'm going to share with you one last item before we leave to kind of um, um, finish that idea. This is called His Love Lights the Way. Thank you. 
sisters over the course of this week. I'm not sure what my PowerPoint just done. But um, we're going to be talking more about that model tomorrow. We'll be talking about transforming our thoughts so they're more focused on positive things, more focused on the Savior, so they become a source of healing for us rather than a source of continuous torment for us. On Thursday, we're going to be talking about replacing behaviors, things that work against us or things that work for us and facilitate the healing process. And then on Friday, we'll talk about transforming our relationships with God, others, and ourselves in ways, again, that push that spiral upward rather than the spiral downward. It is my testimony to you, brothers and sisters, that the Savior Jesus Christ has not stopped being the wonderful counselor, he who rises with healing in his wings, the great physician. He absolutely knows how to guide us to complete healing. And that is my testimony to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.